So in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 2 through 12, And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And that is what we've covered up to now. And it really kind of gives us two areas where we find happiness or we find true happiness. And by the way, when he talks about blessed here, he is saying happy is the one that does this. But it's not the typical kind of happy that you and I think of, like the happy that us 49er fans will feel today as we clinch our division, right? This, this happiness is uh, different than that because we all know that that happiness may not happen and we may be crying by the end of the day. It's controlled by outside circumstances, right? But the happiness here is a happiness that it doesn't matter what goes on around us. It doesn't matter uh, if it's dark outside or sunshine outside. It doesn't matter if we're pockets are full of money or if they're empty and full of breath mints maybe. It just it doesn't matter about these things. It's a happiness. It's a, a peace. It's a sense of serenity that comes from knowing that I'm in a right relationship with God. And it is God that pronounces this on us. It's not the person that says, I'm happy because I'm persecuted. But it's God saying, you're happy when you are persecuted because this is what I'm going to do for you. There is a reward for you. There is something for you. And so it's pronounced on them. You ever known somebody that just belly ached and complained and, and boo-hooed about everything? And you from the outside looked at them and said, you do not realize how truly blessed you really are. Sometimes we're guilty of that, aren't we? that we get to feeling sorry for ourselves and get to down on ourselves. And then something wakes us up and we step back and we say, wait a minute, what am I complaining about? I am blessed. I may not have all the things I want in this world. I may not have all the, the luxuries, but I'm a blessed person. God has done this for me and he has written my name down the Lamb's book of life. He's given me a family. He's given me my health. He's given me all. God has truly blessed me. And that's the kind of blessing that he talks about. And the first several Beatitudes that we talked about covered two general areas. The first one, he said, there's a blessing upon people who realize they have a need for God. He said, they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. He said, they mourn, they depend upon God when they are sorrowful. And he said that these are the ones who are poor in spirit. They realize that they are spiritually bankrupt that they need help, that they need something more than what they can accomplish on their own. They are blessed because they realize they have a need for God. The second group are those who uh, are blessed because they serve God. And in that group, he talks about those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers or who are reconcilers, those who go to set about bringing peace between men and God and men and one another. And this third category of the Beatitudes is where we'll pick up today, and there's just the one Beatitude included in it, and it is blessed are those who suffer for God, who suffer for God. All of us like to be blessed by God, don't we? All of us like it when, boy, the blessings are being poured on. Last week was a, a great week. It was Christmas week that we celebrated, and I hope that God blessed you and your family and that uh, you got all the things you wanted for Christmas. I asked Brother Carl in the office this morning, did you get everything you wanted? He said, nope, didn't get any of it. But he didn't say that. But uh, we never get all that we want, do we? But uh, we're happy with what we do get. Generally, that's what we're happy for. But in this week, he talks about not the blessings so much, but the sufferings. And in those things come the blessing. Let's continue on. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. And I think Christ had in mind here the persecution that maybe these folks were experiencing. He doesn't name the persecutors per se, but if you follow the context of it, I think he's really talking about the spiritual leaders of the day, the Jews that were persecuting these new believers for their faith in Christ. They were those who were upper echelons of the church who were persecuting those who had come to new faith in Christ. And he said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, for yours is the kingdom of God. He almost turns the tables on him. He says, they think they run the show. He says, but I want you to know something. You endure suffering. And the reality is the kingdom of God belongs to you. And then he says this, he changes the tone. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. But then he picks up in the next verse and notice what he says. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He changes it. He says, there is a blessing on those who are persecuted. And then he makes it very personal. He says, and I want you to know something. You are who I'm talking about. This blessing is for you. And today we're going to consider this final beatitude. Blessed are the persecuted. And it's ironic that the last beatitude was blessed are the peacemakers. So we've gone from this wonderful thing of being a peacemaker and trying to have people have right relationships with God and right relationships with each other. And the very next one he says, and blessed are you when you're persecuted. We've gone from this peaceful to turmoil in just one verse. We have been sent to reach men and women and boys and girls with the gospel of Christ, to reconcile them to God, but we are not always received well for that, are we? There are times when we want to share our faith with others, and the mere fact that we're sharing our faith with others is what pushes them against us. Someone asked me, why is Christianity so hated in this world, and why is it that Christians suffer so much persecution? And it really is because Christianity is an exclusive type of Faith in that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Many other religions say there are many ways to God. There are many ways to heaven. But Jesus came along and he upset the masses when he said, I'm the only way to get to heaven. And that set this up for us to receive this kind of response, this persecution. The result of a blessed life, in reality, what he tells us here is when we get all these things going in our lives, when we are pure in heart, when we are filled with meekness, when we seek righteousness in others, when we set about to make peace, and he says, these are the things that make us righteous, and he says, these are the very things sometimes that cause people to persecute us. If you were to even consider the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, meekness, kindness, and all of these, he says, these things are the things that people will persecute you for. The result of a blessed life is that it leads to a backlash of persecution sometimes. But what is persecution? That's the big question. Do we, as American Christians, really understand what persecution is? When we read this, you know, sometimes I think our idea of persecution is when the pastor goes a little bit long and we end up at the back of the line at the sizzler, right? And we say, well, I'm suffering for my faith in Jesus. I remember as a kid, I thought persecution was never getting to watch Disney Sunday nights because we were in church. And I thought, well, I'm suffering for my faith. That's Disney is persecuting me because he scheduled it right during church time. And we all know that the 49ers, they schedule occasionally those games right in the middle of church time. And, and we feel like we're being persecuted because we don't get to watch that. 
But can I suggest to you this morning that our ideas of persecution are probably far different than what Christ had in mind? In fact, recently the news has been filled with uh, two stories of persecution. One was at the beginning of the year. It's been over a year now that it has been going on. And the other was just here towards the end of the year. And these were the two big stories of persecution in the church in America. And the first one was that of Pastor Saeed Abedini, the American pastor who was of Iranian descent. And we know that he was over and he was building orphanages in, uh, in Iran and was in prison. He's been in prison for over a year. And uh, we need to pray for that pastor. Pray for his family as they're here and, and they're longing. And I would suggest that's a, that's a good example maybe of persecution. And the other example, and, and it kind of pales in comparison, was just over the last several weeks we've had the whole Duck Dynasty flap, haven't we? And some people are saying, oh man, this is, we're being persecuted for our faith. And I just have a hard time equating it. I'm not saying I, I don't agree with the happy, happy, happy. But what I'm saying is I find it hard to equate that with maybe what others have gone through for their faith. The fact that I might lose my multi-million dollar contract with A&E and have to go back and only make lesser millions of dollars with my (laughs) duck call business. I somehow wonder if, if even that's what Christ had in mind when he talked about the persecution we face. That even in the midst of this, and I'm not saying that it's not the beginning of something that could turn into something worse, but I'm not sure that we really understand persecution in America like what Jesus was talking about. I ran across this article from the London Telegraph, and I don't know the uh, political leanings of the paper, but the article was very interesting and, and accurate. It was December 21st, just a, a week ago. It says, across the world this week, hundreds of millions of us will be singing of that silent night, holy night, in the town of Bethlehem. But as Christmas approaches with its beguiling promise of peace on earth and mercy mild, how many, how many of us will reflect on the words of our great Christmas carols and be reminded that Christianity was a faith born in the East? How many of us are aware that while the first Christmas took place in the Middle East, there today that same faith is under threat? Last week, the leader of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis, chose to cast light on this dark story of persecution by taking to Twitter to warn that we cannot resign ourselves to think of a Middle East without Christians. Later in the week, Prince Charles warned that Christians in the Middle East are increasingly being deliberately attacked by fundamentalist Islamist militants. Christianity was literally born in the Middle East, and we must not forget our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters in Christ. These were expressions of a growing concern that Christians are being attacked deliberately, targeted and attacked because of their faith. But why, when popes and princes are speaking up, have so many politicians here in the U.K. and the U.S., forsaken speaking out. Isn't that interesting? He says, Across the Middle East, Christians have lived for almost two millennia in the place their faith was born and since thrived within communities in Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and elsewhere. Indeed, the Ottoman Empire, which spanned much of today's Middle East, was a multicultural state, with Christians cohabiting alongside Shi'i, Sunni, Jews, Awadis, and Druze. Yet today, the conflicts raging across the region in Syria most acutely are taking on an increasingly sectarian character. Since the start of the conflict in March 2011, more than 450,000 Christians have fled the country. I think that's persecution, don't you? And I believe we as Christians need to wake up to that because the day may come when we face persecution here on our own soil. 
In Egypt, the plight of the Coptic Christians is of growing concern, he says, with Amnesty International reporting that this year, 207 churches were attacked and 43 Orthodox churches completely destroyed. The last time many of our churches was attacked, it was by a hurricane. Christian persecution is growing across the Middle East, but tragically, the plight of Christians is global and not regional. Research by the Pew Center suggests that Christians are reportedly the most widely persecuted group in the world. Their evidence shows that in 2011, religious groups faced harassment in 160 countries, and that Christians were harassed in the largest number of countries. In Nigeria, Boko Haram, the militant Islamist group, uh, are waging their bloody conflict and targeting church leaders. This month, there were reports of hundreds of houses being burnt down when members of the Boko Haram attacked Arbaco village in Borno State, said to be inhabited by a small Christian community. And in one brutal attack in Pakistan in September this year, 81 Christians were killed when their church in Peshawar was attacked, targeted by suicide bombers, causing the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, to describe the victims as Christian martyrs. You know, and this story goes on, and there are many others just like it. And isn't it strange and isn't it sad that sometimes we're really unaware of what's going on around us? That we're so targeted in on the news events that affect us, aren't we? How many of us have talked about and debated and discussed uh, the Affordable Care Act, or as it's come to known, Obamacare? And boy, we go on and on about it. Or, or maybe we've got riled up about the price of gasoline. Or maybe some other thing going on in our politics in this world. And yet all around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing serious persecution. We pray for better jobs and we pray for cheaper gas prices. And maybe we should turn our hearts and pray for our brothers and sisters. Christ said, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of God. And one of the reasons I think we need to wake up and begin to pray, not only just because that's what Christ would have us to do, But brothers and sisters, the Bible warns us that in the last day, perilous times will come. We will not always have the freedom we have here. We have got to prepare for the persecution that may one day come to us. Paul gave examples, or the apostle gave examples of persecution in Hebrews, depending on who you believe wrote the book of Hebrews. He said this when he finished talking about great heroes of the faith those who had pleased God by exercising great faith and doing great things, he closed the chapter by saying, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The apostle looked back and he realized that there had always been men and women who were persecuted for their faith, who suffered because of it, who wandered the deserts because of it. The children of Israel wandered in persecution for fear of their lives. And he says these are included in this great hall of faith, these great Christians. And then Luke, Jesus gives us a a warning of future persecution. How many of us are aware sometimes when we have catastrophes that take place and earthquakes, boy, we begin to rumble about the signs of the times, don't we? Boy, earthquakes in diverse places and wars and rumors of wars, and we think the the time of Christ's return is very near, and I believe it is near. Jesus said in Luke 21 and 10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, 
and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And we often look at these things and we say, these are the signs of the times. Jesus is coming soon. And and man, what a great time that will be when Christ does return. But make no mistake, the world is going to suffer some pains before it takes place. And it won't just be the earthquakes and the famines and the pestilence and and the wonders and fears from the heavens. Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. And I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. You see, when we talk about the signs of the times, there's no way we can escape that part of the signs of the times will be great persecution that will come upon the Christians. He says, this is going to take place. We have to be ready for these things. Blessed, he says, are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In that passage, I want you to notice a few things in the midst of persecution that we can grab hold of. First of all, in the midst of persecution there in Luke chapter 21, he talks about us having an opportunity to witness. An opportunity to witness. He said, before all this, they'll lay their hands on you. They'll persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues, the prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then he said this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. You and I need to realize that when we face persecution in this life, in this world, it is an opportunity for us to bear witness for Christ. We need to take that seriously. And sometimes, man, when we suffer, and we haven't even gone the, the depths of some of the persecution we've read about, but maybe we have faced some form of persecution or ridicule because of our faith. Maybe someone has mocked us, or maybe we've missed an opportunity because of our faith and our unwillingness to compromise on things. But in the midst of all of that, he says, that's an opportunity for us to witness. But you know what we do? Because we are so unaccustomed to facing anything contrary to us, that when something bad happens, we as Christians tend to fall apart, don't we? Oh, the world is coming to an end. You know, they they canceled my favorite show, or, uh, you know, it's just awful, this is terrible, they've cut my my pay this much, or we just fall apart. He said, stand strong. Whatever hardships you face... These will be opportunities for us to bear witness for Christ. We ought to be the ones that, when we go to work, that have the joy in our heart that makes people say, how are you so happy with everything going on in our world today? We ought to be the ones that when something terrible happens in the community, that that we don't crumble and fall apart, but that we keep our faith strong. And people look to us and say, how are you holding up under this? And we say, only through Christ. He's given me the strength to go on. When we go to the hospital, and many times you see folks in the ER waiting room or surgery waiting rooms, it ought to be the Christians who are there that maybe they're troubled, maybe they're discouraged, and maybe they're worried, but there's something about them that you just notice and you say, man, they are a strong 
group of people. That's our opportunity to witness. It's our opportunity to stand firm. Secondly, in the midst of our persecution, he says that God will give us wisdom and words that we need. He said, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's an interesting statement. I've always believed that you and I need to settle in our hearts what we believe We need to know what we will do and won't do ahead of time so that when the difficult times come, we don't even have to think twice. But We've already made up our mind what we're going to do. And that's not what Christ, Christ is not saying not to do that. But what he's saying is don't worry so much about the specifics of how you're going to answer these folks. If I could put it in my words, what what I believe he's saying is this. When the time comes, I'll give you the strength, I'll give you the wisdom, and I'll give you the words that you need to say. It's almost impossible for us to imagine now what tomorrow holds. And so it's impossible for us to adequately prepare for it. Christ says, you don't worry about it. When the time comes, you stay focused on me, and I'll give you the words to say. I had an aunt that uh, lived in Fairfield, and her husband was a uh, police captain in the Fairfield Police Department, and he got injured in an accident, and, uh, and it changed his, their life forever. Uh, he was never the same after that. He was in a coma for quite some time. They didn't think he'd live. He came out of the coma, and from what I understand, he was all there in this body, but he was trapped in this body. He couldn't communicate like he wanted to, and he'd get frustrated with that. He couldn't move around. His mobility was changed, so he couldn't go places like he wanted to, and that would frustrate him. And so he became kind of a frustrated individual trapped in this body, and it became a very difficult thing for his wife to deal with. And I can remember telling Kathy, I don't know how she does that. I don't know how she lives that way and cares for him. And, and, and I asked her one time, how, how do you do that? How, how are you this strong? And she says, you know, I would have never dreamed that I would have the strength to do what I'm doing today. But God's grace has given me the strength to do what I need to do. Brothers and sisters, we live in such a great time for us. I mean, really, we have such freedom here in our country to worship God and to serve God, but it might not always be so. And we need to be aware of that, but we also need to be aware that we serve a God who says he'll not forsake us. And that when the time comes, he'll give us the strength to carry on. He says, set your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. It's interesting, he also said, set your affection on things above not on things of this earth. And we're told to set our minds on Christ. And I think that if we would focus on Christ and his kingdom, all these other things, Christ said, when the time comes, I'll be with you. I'll stand with you. You ever read some of Fox's Book of Martyrs and saw how Christians suffered greatly for their faith and died at the stake? Some were pulled apart and some were burned. and, And you wonder, how did they do that? And in the face of all that, they did not deny Christ. Many years ago when they had the school shooting there in Colorado, we heard the testimony so many times of the young girl that was told with a gun to her head, deny Christ and I'll let you live. And she refused to die Christ, to deny Christ. And she died for her faith. Many of us have wondered and questioned, would I be able to do that? I think the answer is that if we keep our minds focused on Christ... 
our affection, our love, our devotion focused on things above. When the time comes, Christ will stand with us. And the third thing that he tells us, in the midst of all of this suffering, we will win by our endurance. We will win by our endurance. Most of you probably don't know this, you haven't noticed this, but I'm not really built for speed. You know, I'm not one of those thin guys with long legs that runs really fast. But I can do endurance. I can do endurance. I got one of our brothers over here. He rides a bicycle, too. We're, we're the, the guys that we say, yeah, I'm riding my bike this Saturday. Everybody thinks it's a Harley. And we say, no, it's a 10-speed. <laughs> I went to a, a church in the Bay Area, Sherwood Forest Church, one night, and I was filling in. And I came in, and I mentioned to someone that, you know, I, I rode my bike that day, and I was in a good mood. And the guy said, oh, man, that's great. You rode your bike. And this and that. And he says, something about these sissies that ride these bikes with little seats and 10 speeds on them. And I said, that's what I was riding. <laughs> His Harley was out in the parking lot. But our brother, I think, rides fast. I don't ride fast, but I ride long. I can go 20 miles. I can go 30 miles. I can go 40 miles. Endurance is what I prefer. And the wonderful thing with our faith in Christ and the sufferings that we will face is endurance is what matters. Endurance is what matters. He said, you will be hated for all by, my uh, by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Very similar when Jesus said, if we lose our life, we'll save it. It's strange that he says in one sentence, he says, some of you are going to be killed. And in the very next sentence, he says, not a hair of your head will be lost. And really what he's saying is there's more than just this physical body. In essence, he's saying like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That you can destroy this body, but even if you kill me, I still win. Because the moment I stop breathing here, I wake up breathing in eternity with Christ my Savior. You can knock us down, but you'll never defeat us, is what he's saying. Three things to keep in mind as you face persecution. One is don't take persecution personally. Don't take it personally. In Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, don't take it personally. You're not being persecuted because of you, you're being persecuted because of Christ. When you go out in this world, and, and it is easy to make friends, and, but when you bring up Christ, watch out. He said, blessed are you. Don't take it personally. And in Luke, he said the same thing in Luke 6, 22 and 23. He said, on the account of the Son of Man, and he ended up, so their fathers did to the prophets. Don't take it personally. And notice he says it's on my account. Sometimes I think we're suffering because of our own accounts. Sometimes we say stupid things that cause us to suffer. And sometimes we do stupid things that cause us to suffer. He said there's a blessing for those who suffer on Christ's account. Secondly, don't be surprised by persecution. Don't take it personally and don't be surprised by it. 
In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 24, he has just kind of restated the Beatitudes in Luke, and then he gives the woes to the church. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And then he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And what he says there, he says, if everybody loves you and everybody's happy with you and nobody's critical of you in your life, then something might be wrong. In other words, don't expect everybody to love you because when we serve God, it is going to cause people to be upset. How many of you have ever heard someone call someone else self-righteous? Sometimes it's a deserved statement, but most of the time it's just someone living for God and someone feeling guilty about it. And so they label you self-righteous. I'm not being self-righteous. I'm just going to church. That's what I'm supposed to do. Or people that avoid being around you because you're a Christian. And that you don't even, you're not flaunting it in their face. You're not, but just they know what you believe or what you don't believe in. And it makes them uncomfortable. That's going to happen. There is no way you're going to please everyone unless you stop pleasing God. And even then, I think you'll have a tough time. Not everyone will love you. And third, do what you do for the right reasons. Do what you do for the right reasons. All of these beatitudes, the meek, the humble, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, amen, all of these, do these things for the right reasons. Don't do them for the praise of men because you'll miss out. Don't do them, you know, so that you can get something from someone else because that's just manipulation. Do them because it's what God wants you to do. Do them because it's what He calls you to do. And in fact, in Luke 6, 27, He said this, and let me read this to you. He says, but I say to you, here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And then he makes this statement. And he, three times he says, what good is that? He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. What good is it to love people that love you? Try loving those who don't love you. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? If the only people you do good deeds for are those within this church who do good deeds for you, what really good does that do? Try doing the good deeds out in the community to those who don't necessarily recognize you. For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those with whom you expect to receive, what credit, what credit is that to you? So if you're only helping those who you think could help you, what good is that? If we as a church went out into the community and we decided, man, we're going to reach our community for Christ, and, and we begin to evaluate, well, let's reach this guy because he could really help the church in this way. And let's reach that family because, boy, they got money. We could bring them in, and, man, they could help us buy this land that we needed. Man, we need this person to do this, so let's reach them. He says, is that really what it's about? 
do what we do for the right reasons. To please God. He says, even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind uh, to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Three statements there. What good is that? Do what you do for the right reasons. And then when you're persecuted for it, it really won't matter. Because you didn't do it to get the applause of men. We didn't do it so that everyone would love us. We did it because it's what God wanted us to do. A couple things. We're assured of persecution in the Bible. Timothy tells us this. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to live for God, you will face persecution. But we're also assured of victory in God's word. Paul said this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. We are, and consider these statements in regards to persecution. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Brothers and sisters, we are going to face persecution. Mark it down. If you live a godly life for Christ, you'll face persecution. But victory is promised. A blessing is promised if we'll follow Him. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's stand. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for this day. I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the journey that we've made through the Beatitudes this last month or so. Father, I pray that every one of us would seek to find true happiness. Lord, the world offers us so many things that they promise will make us happy, but they leave us feeling empty and hollow. But you came along and you said this lifestyle, this kingdom lifestyle, 